right? What's the response to that? Anyone? There's no response? Just, hi, hello? All right, top of the morning to ya. Okay, that's better. Well, good morning. My name is Melody. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you this morning. Familiar faces, some new faces, all your faces. Welcome this morning. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of props here with me. And some of you are familiar with these cards. They're right in front of you if you have these in the seat back pocket in front of you. And a couple of things. If you are visiting us this morning, please grab that Connect card in front of you and fill it out. We love to connect with you. You can put it in the box right outside in the foyer, or you can find Grant or I. We're usually outside. Sometimes we're inside. Sometimes you can't find us at all, huh? Um, but we're always around. Um, and so we just love to say hello to you today. Um, the other thing is a prayer card. Uh, please, if you have any sort of prayer request or a praise or something, we love to see these also and we pray over them and usually we connect with you over them. And the last one is the giving envelope. You, um, we can't do any of this without support from everyone. So thank you so much for all the support that everyone partners through in different ways, and there's lots of different ways to give, so I'm going to put that up there for you for a minute. Um, a couple of things. If you are a lady in here today, you are invited tomorrow to come to the Glendora Marketplace at 6.30, and we are going to just gather and have a relaxed time, and you can bring your your own food, or you can buy food, or you can whatever you want food, or nothing food, uh, and we just like to gather, so ladies, make sure you come to that if you are able to, we want to see you there. Um, and the other announcement for the ladies is, oh, I said top of the morning to you, you can tell I've come up with these slogans, look, do, would you like a spot of tea? I like the word oh, I guess, oh, let's see what else we can put that in today. Um, so ladies, at the end of April, there is going to be a very special, very fancy tea. And this is great um, to come and bring a friend, invite a neighbor, or maybe you make it a family affair. You bring your mother, your daughter, your auntie, your cousin, your whoever it is. Um, this requires registration though. And last time I had like 15 people say, oh, I forgot, can I come? Well, this year I'm gonna say no, because this is, this, I'm not going to be like that, but I'm, I might. But um, it does require registration. It requires many hands to participate. So please see me afterwards. If you would like to sign up, I will take your information and I will sign you up. All right? Um, okay, so that's that. And then, um, who likes bread? Right? What's, what's your favorite bread? Sourdough, rye, what's the other one? Raisin? Someone said raisin bread? What? White bread? All right. Anything else interesting? Rana's bread. Yeah, Rana, there you go. All right, well, everyone who just raised their hand, you all can sign up to make some bread or buy some bread. Um, we have a very special Holy Week that happens here, the week of Easter, and that begins on Thursday with Maundy Thursday, and we set up a whole beautiful table, 
beautiful table that we all partake in, and we love to have bread and dates and grapes and some other things, and so we need help. Again, lots of hands to participate in that, so please, please, please call the front office during the week, and Nancy will give you all the details and all the things that we ask for and when we ask for it. Again, you can make it or you can fake it. What does that mean? You can make it or you can buy it. I don't care, right? I like bread, so just bring bread. Um, so please call the front office. And also, um, today, uh, and maybe next week, we will also be asking for your help. Next week is Palm Sunday, and the weekend after that is Easter. Can you believe we're already on Easter? I mean, we were just saying, happy 2023. But now we're almost on Easter week, and we need help filling some Easter eggs for the kids that participate in a little, it's not really a hunt, because they're just spread all over the yard. So, but they like to, uh, you know, go pick the eggs, and it's a beautiful, colorful yard that morning. So you can grab a bag and grab as many Easter eggs as you'd like to fill, and bring those back um, to the front office or on a Sunday, and we will be so grateful for you to participate in that way. The last thing I want to tell you is that we have had, oh, you have a question, Ron. What would you have us in with? Chocolate. And then you can just bring me more chocolate. No, no money. Nobody put money in the Easter eggs. I think we had that last year. Oh, it says no chocolate? Don't feel, okay, put money. Uh, what, do, what do they put in, ladies? Just like other candy. Is Non-melting candy. Okay, so just bring me chocolate. And then for the front office, put other Easter can, or it doesn't even have to be Easter. It can be like, not Halloween candy either, okay? We don't want to see any uh, pumpkin, pumpkin wrappers in there. All right, I'm losing control of the situation here. I should just keep going. Um, okay, last, last, last thing I have to say here is that we have had a wonderful five-week series of small groups that meet here on Wednesday nights, and um, this is our fifth week. It's our final small group before Holy Week. And you can still come. You can still come. And this week, we're going to have a potluck. So uh, you can come, you can bring something, um, but that is on Wednesdays at 6.30 right here, um, and we're going to have a wonderful time together this week. So I think that is all I can possibly get wrong. Let's pray for the rest of our gathering today and um, just be here with each other. Yes? Amen to that? All right. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day, God. Thank you that we are here and just... Uh, just take a breather and hopefully just um, be ourselves for just a few minutes um, and put our worries uh, at your feet, Lord. Put our um, happiness at your feet in, in thankfulness, Lord. Lord, thank you that, um, that each and every person who is here today is here today, God. God, I pray for Grant as he brings us the word that you have given him this morning, God, I pray for him, for his heart. Um, God, would you, um, would you be with us all today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, why don't we welcome back our lead pastor? Yeah?
Should we revisit the candy thing again before we start? <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Yeah, okay. Oh. oh, what a year it's been so far, huh? But we are here, and um, back when we're thinking about this sermon series, uh, I had no idea what was going to be happening in my family's life, and so this is actually the first first foray into this series for me. I'm so grateful for Melody. I just want to say thanks to Melody for bringing the word. Massively appreciate you. Um, you know, the idea for this thing kind of came about, we're thinking about what to do for Lent, and I was remembering a time when uh, a friend of mine, Scott, who's a pastor up in Everett, Washington, uh, and I were on, the, on Orcas Island, and we're going to the little theater there to see a movie about Jesus, and he, in his kind of dry humor, said, you know, it's kind of a bummer when you go see a movie like this when you know what happens in the end. You know, you already know the ending. You know, he rises from the dead. And so I just always remembered that, and I was thinking, well, is that it? It's just the ending? Uh, what about the rest of the story? So between Melody and myself, we started thinking about stories that we perhaps know the ending, or we think we sh- we're sure about that, how it all turns out. Um, but actually, there's so much more that happens, uh, just like in life. You know, we have a confidence about our um, destiny, like in Christ, that where we're going. But sometimes I think we can miss seeing the, the more nuanced, subtle activity of God just in our daily moments, especially when we're around other people, uh, words and actions that actually make a big difference on the journey as we head to where we're headed. So... Um, Today, we're looking at the Old Testament book called Jonah, Um, and maybe you think you know all about Jonah. I'm sure there's at least one thing that you know about Jonah. Let's do a quick word association. You ready? Jack and... I had both those written down. Jack and Jill and the beanstalk. Coming and... Captain and... (laughs) Nailed it. For the young folks in here, you have no idea what just happened. But love will keep us together. Jonah and the... Okay, fish, whale, yes. Um, that's the story, right? But interestingly, it's only a very tiny part of the story. There's only a few words that actually refer to this great fish. But I think often, like in stories like this, our minds are drawn and they focus on the most dramatic parts of the story. Uh, but as we've been saying, some of the most powerful stuff is actually in the less dramatic, small parts, the events of, of the story. As someone once said about Jonah, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Men have been looking so hard at the great fish they have failed to see the great God. It is one of the best stories in the Old Testament, and I'm going to read it in, in its entirety. It's four chapters. Apparently, it takes about eight minutes. Um, so just settle down, relax. Once, once I did this, we brought popcorn. I almost repeated that, but you know, not this time. So just uh, make yourself comfortable and let's listen to this amazing story of a man called Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and he threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to roll back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men feared, greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up, my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, although you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern from the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? There's an ending. Thanks for being such a patient uh, listeners today. So it's only four short chapters. Um, and a way to think about this is to think about the characters. Who's in this passage? And there aren't that many of them. There is God, of course. He is one of the characters. Uh, there's Jonah. There's some sailors. Uh, and there's their captain. There's the Ninevites. And there's the king of Ninevite in particular. And then there's the people and all the animals of Nineveh. So this is a really interesting story because how it is written is pretty much everything that you would expect to happen goes the opposite way. Everything is back to front. The characters do the opposite of what you would typically expect them to do. The first character we're going to talk think about is Jonah. He is, uh, what, his identity and his character, the two things we're going to think about. So first his identity. Well, he's a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He is a prophet. Secondly, he is a prophet, not just any kind of prophet, but a prophet of the living God. He is uh, uh, someone who speaks for this particular God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the true God who is. And thirdly, in the story, he is unique in his identity because he's the only representative of the people of God in the story. Everyone else in the story are what they would call pagans. And he is the only follower of God in the story. So as the follower of God in the story, he's probably going to be the nice guy, right? He's the God-following prophet of God. So he's going to be the hero of the story, the one who is, is good and kind, right? Wrong. His character is nothing like that at all. Jonah comes across in this story very poorly. He is afraid. He is disobedient. He seems to have faith, but it seems awfully presumptuous. He's just, I'm fine. He doesn't seem to care about anybody else. He may even be depressed. There's a whole sense of him going down to Joppa, going down into the ship, right into the bottom of it, and sleeping. He is vengeful. He seems to be theologically knowledgeable. That prayer that he writes is all full of high and mighty, wonderful words. But he doesn't seem to connect his knowledge of God with his actions in response to that knowledge. He apparently is very wealthy. He's able to pay passage on a ship and just be able to sleep and not work on the ship. He's able to use his resources to escape uh, to, into disobedience. Um, not only that, his money enables him to hire these sailors who are just instrumental to him in the story as a means to get him away and not really neighbors. Um, he prays for sure, but when does he pray? He prays when everything goes wrong. He's silently running from God until things get difficult and suddenly he's praying. He seems more worried about his own discomfort than the lives of a whole city. 
<clears throat> there seems so petty at the end. He's like, I want to die because the sun's a bit hot compared to the city full of thousands of women and children and men and animals and he seems to care nothing about that petty. And not only does he, he feel that way, but he calls God's forgiveness wrong. This is wrong. So let's think about other characters and what is different from what you'd expect. Well, the sailors, the sailors have a reputation at all. My dad was a sailor. He was one of the nicer. You know, they have kind of like pirates. Remember the Jonah movie, the pirates who don't do anything, right? So sailors typically don't have the best reputation. They're salty sea dogs, a bit coarse, a bit rough. So you'd expect to see some of that in this story. And actually, the opposite is true. Their identity also is pagan. So they are not God's people in terms of how Jonah is one of God's people. And then secondly, you see their character. And it's simply amazing. They are honorable. They seem kind, compassionate. When Jonah says, throw me into the water, that's what you must do. They, they don't. They spend tons of energy trying to roll back to the shore so they don't need to harm Jonah. As soon as this thing happens, they are, they are immediately uh, transfixed by this power of God and they immediately just enter into worship, offering sacrifices to God. They seem like humble people. Complete contrast to Jonah. These people who are not part of God's people demonstrate all of these attributes that you would hope to see from the prophet of God. And then we get to the Ninevites. Once again, I mean, this is taking it up a notch. Sailors may have had a bit of a, a bad reputation. The Ninevites, from everyone who ever encountered this nation, were horrified by, by this nation. They were powerful. They were wicked. They were a pagan nation. They celebrated brutality and torture. The things that the history records of what the Ninevites did to the people that they conquered. And one of the nations that they had conquered was Israel itself. They were enemies but how are they portrayed? It almost seems like it's unreal what is said. There's not even a, a moment where they have a second uh, doubt about what they do. Jonah, in his, how many words is it? It's like in this text, it's eight words in the sermon. An eight-word sermon, and suddenly the entirety, entirety, every single person, even the king, he takes off his, he comes off of his royal throne, coming down from that position of authority, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, sits in the dust. You know how hard that must be for a king? This really, the point is coming across loud and clear that these people are nothing like Jonah, that they are open to God, repentant, humble, teachable, and even the animals. That's really important. Such is the amazing uh, nature of how these people are portrayed that even the animals are dressed in sackcloth. Even to the animals, the cows and the sheep, they're also repenting as part of this national repentance. So who are we supposed to identify with in this story, do you think? Who do you think we're supposed to identify with in this story? Could it be any of them? Or, or do you think maybe there's a particular message to be given in a particular place such as this to particular people such as this? Maybe Jonah? Do you think maybe we're to identify in some way with Jonah? I mean, we can identify with all of these people potentially, but the contrast is so clear. I'm not sure how easy it is to identify collectively with the Ninevites or the sailors. I mean, that's great to be humble and repentant, but it seems that the person who recorded this story really wants to get us to think about 
Jonah. You know, the original readers were possibly people who had been in exile in Babylon, which was one of the next great wicked nations to drag God's people off into captivity. And then they were allowed, many of them, to return back to the land that they used to live in. And suddenly they're surrounded by all of these diversity of people, pagan people, and people who'd been Jewish people but had gone, kind of gone a different way, whilst the people in Babylon had continued to do the things that they had done for centuries. So now they're here, and, and there's a message to them of how they are to be. So perhaps we, as members of the church, could also self-identify, if we are God's people in this time and place, that maybe we are to pay attention to Jonah, to this story. But no, we, don't, we can't do that, right? We're nothing like Jonah, right? We're nothing like Jonah. I'm nothing like Jonah, you know? Actually, I'm a lot like Jonah. As I was reading and listing all the things about Jonah, I sadly had to admit that I'm often afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I have disobedience as part of my, you know, Life, uh, I have faith, but often my faith leads to presumptuousness. Do you rec- recognize that in your own life a little bit? Like, yeah, God is good, grace is sufficient. Mm, yeah, and I can just kind of, that's mine. It's my possession, I can enjoy that. Um, theologically knowledgeable. I think about Bible studies sometimes. Like, people say, can we do more Bible studies? And I've seen a lot of Bible studies with very little behavior coming out of the other side of the Bible study. We accumulate knowledge. We celebrate how much knowledge you have about the Bible. But maybe, as was the case with Jonah, it's not really translating into some kind of real, noticeable, radical actions. Wealthy. We are some of the most wealthy people in the world. And I think it does allow us, as it did for Jonah, to enable us to escape into disobedience or away from dependence on God because we have some resources that means we are not so, um, so dependent. That just as Jonah used his money to run from God, we also often use our resources, our wealth, to do the same We can also do what Jonah did. He hired these sailors for a task. He didn't seem to care about them as people at all. They were simply people who drove a boat to get him away from where to where he wanted to go. They were instrumental. And I think that also happens with us. That we can use our money and our wealth to have people become instrumental for what they give us in our lives. We pay for it and we pay well for it. And we forget they're actually neighbors to whom we owe a burden of care. Lacking in compassion, we can lack compassion as Jonah did, especially when our enemies might get it. Our enemies might be in line for the fire, and are we really going to step in to seek to save them? Asleep in a storm. You know, I couldn't help thinking about the pandemic, and unfortunately a lot of American church life reminded me of that very thing when our neighbors and our communities are in a terrible storm and we, we're talking about our rights or whatever we're talking about, we're just complaining and moaning and whining. It almost feels a little bit like Jonah, confident that God's got him. He's not worried. He's not gonna die. God's got him. But doesn't seem to really care about the consequences for those around him in his neighborhood on the ship. Prayerlessness until trouble comes our way. You ever do that? You ever go like, 
wow, I don't think I've prayed for a while. But when trouble comes, we're there pretty quick. Oh God, help me, and I will go to church every single Sunday for the rest of my life. I will give, and I will, I will help you know, little old ladies and men across the road, and I will, I will not kick the cat anymore. And then just this, is like, this one really hit me, like whining about little inconveniences when there are hugely important issues in the world. I hate this about myself, being all whiny about a little plant that died and not even thinking about the lives of all of these people that he just seems to handle so, so flippantly, so dis, with so much disregard. So is the message today, don't be like Jonah? I think that's what often happens in churches. It's really easy to go there because it seems like you dispense with your work. Don't be like Jonah. Try harder, do better. And <laughs> Right? We've talked about this a few times. This is moralistic preaching that says the whole point of this story is that you've got to stop being like this person. Is that the message? Well, of course, it would be good to be different from this man. It would be good to always obey God. Always, without fail. Oh, first of all, to be sure you've heard from God in order to obey him, that'd be a good start, wouldn't it? To know exactly, oh, I heard God, oh, sure, I'm going to do it. To always move up into joy and community and, and neighborliness instead of down into depression and isolation. To always love our actual enemies and wish every one of God's blessings to be on them. To never treat people as instrumental because we pay them to do something, but to see them as neighbors, you know, I, I talk about Orcas Island a lot. It's a small island. A lot of things happen on a small island, right? But one of them was, I had quite a few uh, contractors that came to church. And they talked to all the other contractors on the island who didn't come to church. And sadly, many of the people in our church who got people to come and do jobs for them were the rudest, meanest, penny-pinching people on the island. And it saddened me to no end to hear that that was the case. Nice people in church, I hear that they're being mean to these builders and plumbers and electricians, and that was a reputation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could never do that with people? We'd always see them as the image bearers, carrying the image of God. Um, to stay awake uh, and alert when the storms threaten our neighbors, that we would be first responders with love and care and service, always, without fail, ever. Is this the goal we're trying to get to? To, uh, to never use our faith as a reason for presumptuousness. Uh, to always pray and not just when trouble comes. To never throw a tantrum when little annoyances interrupt our otherwise perfect day. So is this the message? Well, it, it's not. I mean, if you're realistic and honest about yourself, if that's the message, you guys should just leave. Because if that's the goal you've got to reach today, to be perfect, then I, I'm, I quit. Because I know myself too well. So what are we to do? What are we to do in response to this? Well, the answer is actually found in something, not in something that we can do, but in what has already been done for us by someone else. Because what is remarkable about Jonah is later on in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's another person who identifies himself with this Jonah, with this reluctant fearful, disobedient, vengeful, not uncompassionate prophet. And that person is Jesus. Surprise, surprise, you surprised? It's a Sunday school answer. Who's that person? 
And it's in Matthew chapter 12. It's kind of a bit of a mystery. People go, why does Jesus talk about Jonah? Well, what it says is some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Why would Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, identify himself with this man, Jonah, who by every measure of faithfulness did the opposite of what he should have done? Well, firstly, he identifies with himself. He actually says the son of man. How Jesus refers to himself in this passage as son of man. He identifies himself with the humanity of Jonah. That Christ took on human flesh, became 100% human, sharing our full nature. And because he is God, uh, he enables us to share uh, in the nature of God. Um, there's a, a guy, Philip Carey, wrote this. Jesus Christ, the chosen one, who never for a moment turns in the opposite direction from where God sent him, has the mission of identifying with Jonah, the chosen one who flees his mission and thereby redeeming all those who flee and exile themselves from the presence of God. It is remarkable that Jesus, the Son of God, would identify himself with this man, Jonah, in such a significant way. And we might find that kind of offensive because God is pure, Jesus is pure, but he comes and he identifies with this fail, failing prophet who by every measure does not live up to the call of God. So what happens also is that God's plans are not stopped by Jonah's disobedience. So it's encouraging that, that God identifies with Jonah because that means he also identifies with me even if I don't measure up and fix all of these things, God in the flesh identifies with me, but also God's plans are not prevented by who I am, my humanity. God is here glorified, not through his ambassador, but in spite of his ambassador's complete refusal. This is so important also because we can start to think that, that our behavior is the sole determiner of how God can work in this world, but he will accomplishes plans anyway. God's plans were not prevented by the human failings of this man, Jonah, and they will not be prevented by the human failings of you and me. Not anger, not fear, not depression, not prayerlessness, not grief, not death. None of it can prevent the work of God in and through his people. You know, this, this uh, book of Jonah starts and ends with the word of God. The word of God, the word of God came, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and at the end, it ends with God speaking. And Jesus is the word of God for us. Because of Jesus, everything has changed. We sung that earlier. It's amazing sometimes when these songs fit together and it said, Jesus, you change everything. You know, the Old Testament, there's a lot of, fearsome encounters with God, such as the stuff that happens in Jonah. For God to intervene in Jonah's life in this story, it required a cataclysmic storm, a near watery grave, a trip in the belly of a whale, 
and a sudden plant withering under a blazing sun, very extreme, powerful forces. What does it require now for God to intervene in our lives, just as we are in our brokenness, in our fear, in our depression, in our isolation, in our presumptuousness? Well, what it requires is that God fully step into our experience and become human. That in Christ, God has experienced the storms of God. He has experienced the scorching heat of our sin. And he has experienced this death three, nights, three days and three nights in the tomb. And yet has emerged alive, victorious. So how does God intervene in our lives now? He simply intervenes in our life to know that he has come and he has offered his life to us. And that we can simply embrace that story as part of our story. We don't start with self-improvement. We don't start with fixing our sins. We start with embracing what has already been done for us in Christ who identifies with the sinner and takes the sinner's place. So we can actually live with freedom and joy now. We're truly free. We're still human beings. We still fail. We still encounter all the things that our weak flesh causes in our lives. But we have been set free by Christ. I'm going to call the band up as we close. Because how does this story end? Well, I said before, it ends with God speaking. It's kind of an odd ending. It's a bit unsatisfying. It reminds me of Job that Melody preached about, where it kind of ends with God addressing Job. The same kind of thing happens here, and it ends with a question. After all of this, God asks Job a question, and it's a rhetorical question. He says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the left, and also many animals. The whole point is, will we confess and affirm what God is like, what God wants and cares about, and allow that to fill our vision for life, for relationships, for our purpose on this earth, and for our hope for God's kingdom to come? That's what this church is about. It's not about try harder, do better. Of course, pay attention to your life and your conduct, but it has to come from the power of Christ in our lives that first of all tells us that he has redeemed us and he is making all things new. That's where the transformation comes from. And then we seek to live in proximity with one another, in community. That's where we meet Christ as we serve, as we worship, as we enjoy soup next Sunday, we're all in the same boat. We are all walking on the same earth. We dwell in the same city of human life. So we're gonna to come to communion. And once again, as we take communion, you're welcome. It's anyone who, who really has a desire to follow God in Christ is welcome to participate with us. We do this as a family. And we do this really for the vertical and the horizontal of what, what we've just been talking about, that we have a relationship with God. We've been welcomed to the table, just as we are, not required to polish your shoes and clean up your life first, but you come just as you are, confessing that you cannot fix yourself. And you come with all of these other people who are similarly in that same place of needing to know there is a God who loves them and to encounter the power that he gives us to be transformed and to grow.
So the band's going to just play a little quiet music, I think, and then in your own time, get up and get a cup and a piece of bread, and we'll hold them and take them together uh, shortly. Thank you, Lord, for every person here, and we just pray that as we take this bread and take this cup, that we would discern your love for us, the great story that even though you had every reason to distance yourself from us, and we were indeed distancing ourselves from you, you identified and identify with us in our humanity, and you hold out hope for change. May we be nourished by this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. You know, Jesus' disciples spent three years with him in all kinds of circumstances. One of the times he spent with them was on a boat. Remember the story? And Jesus was sleeping. You know, not, not a presumptuous faith. Even the parallels are incredible. If you read through the gospel and see how many connections there are with Jonah and with Jesus. And Jonah, who did all of these things in very human, broken ways. Um, and Jesus, who came and it's almost like followed up behind Jonah and, and fixed it for him and for everyone who would put their trust in Jesus and said, you know, it's like a big brother, you know? Uh, and then he had many times with the disciples, one of them was, was in this room. Um, and I'm sure we all have pictures in our minds of movies we've seen, you know, of the Last Supper. Maybe it's the Leonardo da Vinci picture, you know, where they all got on one side of the table for the photograph. You know that one? Um, but, you know, I've often just pondered, like, what it would have been like in that room and, and how the disciples would have wanted to stay there, you know? Even despite the, the kind of stuff that Jesus was saying, you know, enjoying a meal with him. You just want to stay there. You don't want to go out into the garden. And all that followed, the horrors of the night, which we're going to kind of enact on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, on Holy Week. Um, sometimes we want to stay here too, you know. And that, and that is actually a good impulse because it's a longing for something that is good and true and right, isn't it? You know, that's the longing that God placed in us. We want to be with him. We want to be with one another. But in this time, you know, we do leave, we step out into the world. I just want us all to be confident that as you walk out that door today, all that is true in here is also true out there, that you are loved, that you are, you know, in Christ, you are cleansed, you are perfect in his sight, and you can have the confidence to get up in the morning, to get out of your bed, and simply live in community with other people, knowing that he is with you. And he is, he is using you in ways you're not even aware of. The little moments in your story are important to the stories of one another. Um, so let's take this bread as we remember that this is all possible because when we could not do it, Christ Jesus came and he did it. And Jonah was a person, a creature of comfort. The little plant provided shade and the sun was hot like in Southern California is going to be soon for the rest of the year. And he's whining, you know. And, and, you know, if you were thinking about Jesus, like you'd have every right to just like, just cast this man away because Christ went through such suffering, took upon himself all of the sin of Jonah and every other person. Um, but he doesn't do that. That is the love of God that, that looks with forgiveness on all of our sin and our brokenness. 
and then willingly takes it. And this is what is symbolized by this, that we confess that we have been cleansed and purified by his grace and his love and his mercy. Let's take the cup. Just thinking about people we've lost recently. And I know it's kind of like, maybe not theologically, whatever, but I kind of get some comfort in thinking that the people I have lost recently kind of have a, a bigger picture on things right now. And maybe even got a chance, I've met Jonah, <laughs> you know, and get a chance to, you know, gather with the saints, you know, and, you know, we're still running our race. So I'm just really grateful to be back here with you all and look forward to the coming weeks and months where we, we take this seriously, uh, that we are God's people and he is sufficient. Amen. Let's sing together.